Right, uh, good evening everyone. Many thanks for braving this rather cold night to either stay at, at, at LSE or come to LSE um, to what I'm sure will be an excellent talk. Thank you. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge, and I'm the director of the Middle East Center here at LSE, and I was very keen to get my friend Peter Newman to come and speak. Uh, he's at King's College, so we, we, we forgive him that. But he's at the heart of the enemy. You know, the second, <laughs> second best college in London. So he's crossed the road uh, to come and speak to us. Uh, he'll speak for around 30 minutes, 35 minutes. There'll be questions and after answers. Now, uh, questions and answers afterwards. Now, I say this at the beginning of each lecture. I bring out my mobile phone and I turn it off. And I ask all of you to do so. And then halfway through the lecture, someone's phone goes off. So can you please turn off your phone uh, and save me the pleasure of shouting at you and calling you a numbskull for letting it ring in what I'm sure will be an excellent talk. Uh, Peter Newman is Professor of Security Studies at the War Studies Department. And I think much more importantly serves as the director of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization, which he played a central part in founding in 2000. And eight. And if you look at the um, ICSR's publications, its output, I think it's shaped. I, I think it, uh, foreign policy think tanks and universities often are like oil and water, and they don't mix, uh, despite the best efforts of our elders and betters to try and make us do so. And I think Peter's centre uh, is the opposite of that. I think it's shaped the level-headed, calm, and thoughtful study of radicalisation. Uh, by bringing uh, a set of very fine minds to the study, but also having a very astute, if I may say so, platform for publications and a very good eye on public relations, which is not in any way to do, uh, to do down what they do, because what they're doing is driving forward thoughtful but policy-relevant re research in a rather incendiary and tabloid-esque arena. So we thank him for that. But more importantly, he's going to speak on foreign fighters in Syria and Iraq, motivations and implications. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Uh, oops, sorry. Just going to bring up my presentation. Okay, thank you very much for giving me this platform. Uh, Toby, it's an honor to be at LSE and to speak to you, and uh, uh, I look forward uh, to your questions. What I want to speak about tonight is a phenomenon that we first discovered uh, two years ago, by which I mean me and the people who work with me. And one of my researchers discovered that British people were going over to Syria. Remember, that was at a point when basically no one was talking about this. And not only did they go over to Syria, but also they remained active in their social networks. So they maintained their Facebook profiles, their Twitter accounts, Instagram, Tumblr. And we found it quite interesting that based on what they were talking about, and they were talking very freely, we could find out a lot of things um, in terms of how they got there, what was happening in Syria. So we decided to keep tabs on them. And over the years, we built a database that now contains 700 Western fighters that have gone over to Syria. And at some point, we realized, hey, this presence on Facebook not only enables us to monitor them and to 
find out what they are doing and to download their pictures, it also enables us to actually communicate with them. And so in addition to the 700 profiles of foreign fighters, we have now had nearly, well, between 50 and 100 conversations with people who are currently on the ground in Syria. And without wanting to blow my own trumpet, I think that we're possibly the only center or think tank whose publications are actually based on communication with the fighters themselves. There's a lot that is written about this phenomenon, this population, but very, very few people actually speak to them. And so part of my presentation draws on what we have found out as a result of watching them, as a result of talking to them, but also as a result of two trips that we have made down to the border between Syria and Turkey, where we spent some time actually meeting some of the people in person. I may not have time to go through all of these points, but I will concentrate on the more important ones, and perhaps we can delve into some of the things that I've omitted uh, during questions and answers. These are the most frequently asked questions. I guess I do not have a, an overarching narrative or argument yet, but on each of these points, I guess I do have a point to make. The first one is the question that is often asked as to how many people have gone to Syria, now to Syria and Iraq, as foreign fighters. And there are a number of what I would consider to be credible estimates. In December 2013, a little bit more than a year ago, we mentioned a number of up to 11,000. That was based on really consistently um, monitoring press reports, but also reports that we um, saw on the foreign fighters' pages themselves, in addition uh, to government figures. Um, the figures rose, and what we gained confidence from was that other organizations that used different methodologies and did it independently came to very similar conclusions. And so yesterday we published a report that was putting the figure at 20,700. And I'll come to that in a second. But the point that I want to make here is that, interestingly, between December 2013 and April 2014, the numbers were not going up anymore. And that was, we believe, because the principal narrative during that five-month period was one of infighting between Sunni groups, between different Sunni groups, people who were all opposing Assad. And a lot of the wannabe foreign fighters that we were seeing and talking to on Twitter and on Facebook were telling us, I don't want to go down there in order to be killed in infighting, in an internal feud, possibly even killing my brothers that might have joined a different organization, I'm holding back. And so during that period, the numbers were not going up. But of course, since June 2014 and the declaration of the so-called caliphate by the Islamic State and the quick military successes that followed that, we've seen the numbers jump up again. And I will come to that a little bit later. And of course, another important fact here in terms of understanding the numbers is that 2014 has seen the first significant wave of returnees 
So when I'm talking about 20,700, it's important to consider that that does not mean that there are 20,700 foreigners on the ground in Syria and in Iraq. Now, there are conflict totals. A lot of countries, we believe that maybe up to a third of fighters have already returned to their home countries, and maybe between 5 and 10% have died as a result of the conflict. So the numbers of foreigners on the ground in Syria right now may be actually significantly less. These are the numbers that we published yesterday, and... I don't want to go through them in detail, but what you can see is that clearly still the um, biggest source of foreign fighters for the conflict are Middle Eastern countries. Maybe 60% of them come from Middle Eastern countries. But up to 4,000, which is about a fifth of the foreign fighters in the conflict, are coming from Western European countries. And if you look at those Western European countries, and they are the ones that we're particularly interested in, you can see that, of course, the largest European countries are producing the most foreign fighters. But what's really interesting here is that there are a number of smaller European countries that disproportionately contribute to the overall totals. In particular, Belgium, for example, which is producing almost as many foreign fighters as Germany or the UK, even though it only has a seventh of the population of Germany. And that disproportional contribution is also true for all the Scandinavian countries and for the Netherlands. If you compare the Syrian conflict, the Syrian-Iraqi conflict, to other mobilizations of foreign fighters in Muslim-majority countries in the past, and this is a table that was produced by Tom Heghammer for an article in International Security, you will quickly see, without going into details, that there has been actually only one mobilization of foreign fighters that has been similar, and that is, of course, the Afghanistan conflict in the 1980s, which has also produced up to 20,000 fighters, albeit over an entire decade, whereas in the case of Syria and Iraq, we're now talking about roughly the same number in just three or four years. So whatever the exact figures, the Syrian-Iraqi conflict has caused by now, the greatest mobilization of Muslim foreign fighters since 1945, narrowly surpassing the Afghanistan conflict in the 1980s. In the case of many Western countries, I can tell you a number of them because we know the numbers exactly, the numbers of citizens and residents who have gone to Syria exceeds the combined totals of all foreign fighters in all previous conflicts. That gives you the scale of mobilization that has taken place over the last three or four years. Now, of course, the concern is, that is expressed by policymakers and the press, but also is taken seriously by analysts that, like the Afghanistan conflict in the 1980s, the long-term legacy of this conflict may, of course, be a terrible, terrible situation in the region, but in terms of the foreign fighters that, like the Afghanistan conflict, it will produce international networks of people that will then turn up in other conflicts or possibly even, and will come to that, be involved in acts of terrorism in the West. Why do they go? Why have they gone? There are different motivations, clearly. And the point I want to get across here and across my presentation is that there is no monolithic entity or monolithic population that is the Western foreign fighter. When we look at our 
empirical evidence at literally thousands and tens of thousands of statements that we have gone through over the past two years by foreign fighters themselves, we see a number of narratives that are sticking out. It's very clear that for a certain demographic of Western foreign fighter, let's say young males, the notion of adventure is important. The idea of brotherhood, going there, fighting for a good cause, becoming a hero, hanging out with the bros. In 2013, there was a Twitter hashtag that became very, very popular amongst foreign fighters. It was called the Five Star Jihad, where foreign fighters themselves were tweeting pictures of themselves in Syria, communi communicating that idea that you could come here, have a great time, uh, hang out with the brothers, and, and, uh, and become a hero in the process. And often, quite literally, within five minutes of people turning up in Syria, we saw that they were posing with weapons and that they were posting those pictures on Facebook in order to communicate to their folks at home, look, I've arrived. And I'm not necessarily a feminist scholar, but it doesn't take a lot of education to understand that this has something, to some extent, to do with masculinity. There are also, of course, quote-unquote, more serious motivations that revolve around politics, religion, and identity. And it's certainly true that in the first phase of the conflict, 2012-2013, a very dominant narrative amongst foreign fighters themselves was the idea of defending your brothers and sisters against what was perceived as an existential threat. And what was articulated by a lot of the fighters themselves, and what came from a lot of radical preachers who were trying to recruit people to go to Syria, was this idea that there was a conspiracy. A conspiracy led by Bashar Assad, supported by Iran, possibly the Iraqi government, and Hezbollah, intent on exterminating the Sunni people of Syria. And there was no lack of evidence to illustrate that. Syrian people, Sunni Syrian people being tortured, being raped, being killed. And the appeal to Western Muslims was very simple. It was, no one is helping us. No one is helping us. America is not helping us. The West is turning a blind eye because only Muslims are being killed. We need you. We understand you're studying, you're working, you have a family. But at this point in time, if being Muslim means anything to you, you have to step up and come here and help out and defend your brothers and sisters. And we were, to some extent, not surprised by that because there's research on foreign fighters in previous conflicts, not only conflicts involving Muslims, but for example, Spanish Civil War, conflicts even in the 19th century in the United States that show that one of the key narratives that mobilizes people to become foreign fighters is that notion of existential threat. A group that you share an identity with is on the verge of being exterminated, and they need you to come and help them. And that was a very important motivator for people to come in the first wave of the conflict. However, since last June, since the creation of the so-called Islamic State, the creation of the caliphate, there's also more frequently this idea and this fascination, if you want, with the notion of a caliphate. And I would argue that the people who've been turned on by this are people who are 
more extremist in their outlook than the people who came in the first wave. And here the attraction was the idea that there's something coming into existence that is almost like a utopia, something that people have talked about for a long time, but those Islamic State guys are really doing it, and they have the military victories to prove it. Every week, some town is falling. The caliphate is expanding. And in a thousand years' time, people will still be talking about those brave young Westerners who came over here to help build the Islamic State, to help rebuild the Islamic State. You could see that that was appealing to people who were quite ideologically motivated, but if you were a psychologist, you could also say perhaps that was an idea that gave a lot of people that perhaps weren't that engaged and didn't have that many perspectives in their lives in Western countries a notion of significance and meaning. It was a historical project that you could become part of. And then, of course, ever since the beginning of the coalition campaign against the uh, against the Islamic State, we've again seen that notion of the West at war with Islam, um, which wasn't actually that predominant even until a year ago when we were last in, in the border region. And we talked to a lot of fighters, and I've been interviewing um, extremists for 10 or 15 years, and it was almost the first one that in an hour-long conversation, the opposition to the West almost didn't come up. You almost had to remind them that they also hated America and the West. It was quite, quite extraordinary. And clearly, a year ago, um, the West was not seen as an enemy. But what you can see now is that that notion of the West at war with Islam has, um, has come back, and it clearly does energize some people to go over there. There are also enabling factors. Geographical proximity may be one. Uh, Syria is one budget airline flight away. It is, you know, everyone goes via Turkey, so it is very easy to get there. If you are from continental Europe, if you're German like me, you do not even need a passport to go to Turkey, so ultimately no one, there, there will be no stamp in any passport. And it's, of course, ease of entry. 90% of British foreign fighters enter via Turkey. Here's a picture of uh, two fighters that we, me, my, me and my research assistant, Shiraz, met on our last trip um, to the border region. And we met them in a town called Rehanli, which is directly on the border with Syria. I'm putting that, and I'm putting that picture up there in order to illustrate the complexity of the situation on the ground, especially when it comes to this idea of supporting moderates and preventing weapons from falling into the hands of extremists. Uh, this guy is called Hisham. He's a member of Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. And this guy is called Bashar. And he used to fight with ISIS. And he is now, he wasn't quite clear about who he is with, but I suppose, I think strongly, he's also now with Jabhat al-Nusra. The point is that if you talk to these guys, and if you talk to FSA people, they will tell you that Jabhat al-Nusra is absolutely fine. You can cooperate with them. And what they will also tell you 
is that if Husham looks at Bashar, he does not look at him as a member of any particular organization. He looks at him as someone he's known for 15 years. He's gone to school with in Palmyra. He knows his, fathers, uh, his father and his mother. He's worked with him. And that is the basis on which he collaborates with that person. The basis on which they collaborate is the trust that they've built up over 10 or 15 years, the fact that they know everything about each other's lives, the fact that they may be with different groups is almost immaterial. I would even go as far as saying that Husham would rather collaborate with Bashar, whatever group he belongs to, than with someone within his own group that he doesn't know particularly well. And that makes it so difficult to operate in that particular environment, even if you believe in sitting in Washington, D.C., or in London, or in Paris, that you can channel weapons to a particular group and prevent them from you know, falling into the hands of other groups. That is a complete underestimation, in my view, of the dynamics on the ground that you discover if you spend some time there. The other point I want to make with that picture is quite how easy it is to meet fighters in that particular part of the world. So on our second trip, we, we spent 10 days in Antakya and Trehanli. If you go to Antakya and you sit down in a coffee shop, in the most important coffee shop, it takes about five minutes until you see the first foreign fighters walking around. If you're not lucky, you can ask anyone and everyone will tell you what B&Bs they are staying at, what mosques they are praying at. If you're still not lucky, you can go to one of five uniform shops in Antakya where you enter and the guy asks you, what group are you with? And you say ISIS and he gives you an ISIS uniform. And whenever I speak publicly, typically there's someone from the Turkish embassy in the audience to correct me and to say this is all wrong. And I can only tell you, this is what I've seen with my own eyes. And I do think that the presence of a lot of groups and the tolerance that is given to the presence of a lot of groups on Turkish territory has been a very positive factor in 2011-12 when the opposition was not quite that extremist, but is now something that is clearly problematic and that I believe Turkey does not know how to deal with. They're certainly afraid that if they start cracking down on these groups operating within their area, that those groups will then turn on Turkey, which they are not really doing right now. There's a sort of almost tacit agreement that um, if those groups can continue to operate, then Turkey, um, um, then, then they will not hurt Turkey. Just a few brief words, because I'm, I've already talked for too long. <laughs> I'm not even going to come to the last, last few points. But I wanted to say a few words about why people go there, because there's so much rubbish, really, in the media about the role of social media and the Internet. Um, we are going to bring out a report in, hopefully, inshallah, in three or four weeks. We've been working on it for, for a long time, but events continue to interfere with the publication about the role of the Internet in making people go. And the Internet and social media are certainly important, especially for ISIS, but their significance can easily be overstated. 
nor is the flow of information as centralized and as coordinated as often imagined. What we did for a report that came out last year was that we looked at all the foreign fighters in our database and we were collecting all the expressions of approval, likes on Facebook, mentions, retweets, follows, to understand what are the sources of influence and importance amongst the foreign fighters and the wannabe foreign fighters themselves. And what we found out is that, for example, on Twitter, the most influential and important accounts amongst the foreign fighters themselves were not those by ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra, but were those by what we call cheerleaders, people who had taken it upon themselves to promote the message of a particular group. They were people who were often, in all cases, in fact, not based in Syria or Iraq, and they were not formally affiliated with any of the organizations. So whenever governments talk about taking down the Twitter accounts by ISIS, that's fine. But those accounts are not necessarily the most important or influential amongst the fighters themselves. The same is true for the people who were inspiring the foreign fighters, the radical preachers that we found to be most influential amongst the foreign fighters by collecting their expressions of approval, but not in fact, official ISIS sheikhs or Jabhat al-Nusra sheikhs, they were these two guys, one based in Dearborn, Michigan, the other one based in Australia. Again, people who were not formally associated with any of these groups and who were not based anywhere near the zone of conflict, but who had taken it upon themselves to promote the message of these groups. And when it comes to recruitment, it should be obvious to everyone who studies this phenomenon closely that the internet doesn't in itself make people go. If it was the internet that made people go, then you would expect the distribution of people going to Syria to be even across the country because the internet is everywhere. The reality is, all across Europe, you have clusters of people going. In Britain, for example, in Portsmouth, in Cardiff, in Brighton, certain places in London. In Norway, for example, almost all the foreign fighters that have come from Norway are not only coming from the same town, they are coming from the same street. And that shows you that essentially peer-to-peer -peer relations, friends telling friends to go, is still the predominant pattern of recruitment. And when it comes to so-called recruiters, they are often the people who have gone already. You see this pattern play out all over Europe in the sense that what you often have are groups of people, groups of friends, who've been friends even before the Syria conflict started. One or two people go over, they stay in touch with the people who've stayed back, and they create a sense of social obligation. They say to the people who've stayed back home, look, we all agreed on this, we promised each other, and you're still sitting in Portsmouth and not doing anything about it. When are you coming? And that's how recruitment happens in, I would say, 90% of cases. This is an example that I will skip. This is an example that made big headlines in Germany last week. Uh, an ISIS cell in Wolfsburg. And that cell consisted of five people currently in Syria. Two people had already returned, but there were 40 supporters. And it's also a great example of how much you can learn 
from the Internet because if you look at their Facebook profiles, you can, for example, see the Wolfsburg Waffles where they all met all the time and where the whole cell emerged. You could see that they were reaching out to other extremists in other parts of the country. And you can see how strong the personal relationships were between people who had already left and people who had stayed behind and how the people who had already left were encouraging people to follow them to Syria, which in some cases people did. So the Internet plays a role in the sense that it enables people to stay in touch with people who are on the front lines, but it doesn't play the role that is often portrayed in the media in the sense that people see an ISIS video and then the next second they are packing their bags and they are on their way to Syria. That's absolutely not how it works. As I said, our report will come out next month and we'll give you the details on that. Very briefly, what do they do? One of the really interesting things is, of course, why do organizations like ISIS or Chapatanos even want these people? Why do they want a fat guy from Luton? Um, A fat guy from Luton who doesn't speak Arabic, who doesn't have any connection to Syria whatsoever, who doesn't have military training, who is not very good at anything. I'm not saying that that is the prototypical foreign fighter, but that certainly represents a segment of the people who are going to Syria. And indeed, of the Europeans, as opposed to, for example, the Chechens and the Libyans and the Iraqis, very, very few people do have genuine battlefield experience. But they are completely dependent on the groups they are in, precisely because they don't speak Arabic, precisely because they don't really know where they are and what they are doing. They are often ideologically motivated, and they do as they are told. Now, I don't think it is a surprise that these fighters are used in a range of tasks. Unless they have previous battlefield experience, they are typically used for one of four things. Specialized skills. If you are a car mechanic, you can do the same thing for ISIS. If you are good at writing or if you are good with social media or computers, you can be part of the social media department. If it's none of that, then they will give you a week's training and then you're expected to stand guard for 15 hours a day, which is often causing frustrations amongst the fighters themselves because it is not the kind of fighting that they had in mind when they signed up for it. But here's the thing. Unless you can't do any of this, one of the attractions of having foreigners who don't blend in, who don't speak the language, who are mostly ideologically motivated, is to carry out excessively brutal operations. So if you look at beheadings, at torture, at, in the case of ISIS, 70% of the suicide operations, it is not Syrians, it is foreigners. And when, when we did field work, even with members of Jabhat nusra or former members of ISIS, they were all telling us that a lot of Syrians are refusing to become involved in these operations because they say it has nothing to do with Islam that we've practiced in our country for God knows how long for. And foreigners will do these operations. We know from the Iraq conflict in the 2000s that almost 90% of the suicide operations were carried out by foreigners. The number is not quite as high in the case of Syria, but in the case of ISIS, for example, it is still very much um, the vast majority 
of suicide operations. Finally, what happens when they return? Of course, some will die. I said at the beginning, um, we estimate that 5 to 10% uh, have already died. Um, others may move to the next battlefront. Others may want to stay in the Islamic State as long as it exists. That's why you saw all these people burning their Western passports. They want to express a commitment of staying in what they regard as the sort of utopia that they always want to live in. But that will still leave a large portion of the people who've gone over. And the question is, of course, from policymakers' point of view and from media's point of view, will they all become terrorists? Um, and, of course, there's plenty of stuff that you can find on the Internet that's already saying, oh, we're going to come and strike you. How seriously should we take this? Now, there are two credible, rigorous academic studies that have estimated the veteran effect. One is by Thomas Heghammer and was, studied la it was published last year in the American Political Science Review. He found, based on a little bit more than 1,000 foreign fighters in previous conflicts, and about one in nine, after returning to their home countries, became involved in domestic acts of terrorism. There's another one that came out more recently by Jitte Clausen at Brandeis University, who estimates the effect to be slightly higher, one in four. What do we learn from this without going into a lot of details? The good news is a majority will not become terrorists. Right? However, given the scale of mobilization, there may still be a threat. And I think that's important to understand because in the current debate, there are two positions. There is the position that is advocated by people like Cage prisoners who basically say they're all good people that are going to come back and cause no problem whatsoever. And then there's the other position, which is the Daily Mail position, which is they're all going to blow us up. The reality is it is probably not one or the other. And what research tells us is precisely that. And uh, I'm you know, trying to be realistic by saying that, of course, some of these people will cause concerns. They will also cause concerns because, again, different pieces of research have shown that those that do become terrorists, the minority, whether you believe it is 10% or 25%, are going to be better terrorists. Um, there have been a number of studies that have compared terrorist plots that have involved foreign fighters to terrorist plots that have not involved foreign fighters. In all of these cases, it turns out that foreign fighter involvement makes these plots more lethal and more viable. And typically, the plots that involve foreign fighters are also more complex, and they are bigger plots. So arguably, those that do become terrorists are going to be more dangerous. And of those that do not become terrorists, some will be traumatized regardless of their ideological motivation and pose risks to society. And without being a psychologist myself, uh, I, don't, I don't think it takes a lot of education to recognize that some of these people are pretty messed up. And I, I want to give you just a couple of examples of people that we followed for some time. This is a British fighter who was based in uh, Raqqa, and they made these arrests. They were either FSA people or whatever. 
And he tweets, got these criminals today, inshallah, will be killed tomorrow. Can't wait for that feeling when you just killed someone. And then, that, in fact, the next day he tweets out this picture with his bloody hand, which says, my first time. And within a couple of days, you have that whole thing being turned into a poster. Here's an example of a German fighter, Mustafa K., who really is messed up. If, you, if I had the time to show you uh, his entire uh, Facebook page, you'd realize without a lot of hesitation that this is a guy who has serious issues. These are a lot of pictures of him in Germany. Then he goes to Syria. We love the kids, and the kids love us. And literally the next day, you see this picture from Assaz where he either takes part or witnesses an execution. This is, in fact, now a bit of a debate in Germany because the question is whether it is possible to prosecute him or whether he participates in that, uh, participates in that execution or simply witnesses. So there are plenty of people who will come out of that conflict, regardless of the whole terrorism debate, that are really messed up and that may do crazy things regardless of their motivations. So the conclusion is, I think um, you should stop people from going. And I think it is absolutely legitimate if there is reasonable suspicion that you may want to join a terrorist organization, or whatever you want to call it, um, a jihadist organization in Syria, Iraq, to confiscate your passport at least temporarily and to stop you from going because the chances are that you will radicalize further and you will come back and at the very least be um, messed up in your head. But it's also important to recognize that not all fighters are the same. As I said before, the foreign fighters are not a monolithic entity. They are not a monolithic population. What we've seen very clearly from our research and what we've argued in public is that there need, to be, there need to be distinctions. And not only is it not viable in the case of Britain, for example, to incarcerate 600 people coming back from Syria and to put them into a prison system where they may even radicalize further, but it is also not even it is not the right thing to do. So when Boris Johnson proposed that these people should be stripped off their citizenships and they should be allowed to rot and if they come back to Britain, they should be incarcerated for 30, 40 years. We came out very strongly and said, that is probably not the smartest way of doing this. What we recognize is that based on our own observation and based on the empirical evidence that we have collected, there are broadly three different types of people that we're dealing with. And I always summarize them as the three Ds. There are people, and it would be a fallacy not to recognize that there are people who are dangerous and who may pose a threat upon their return, and we've seen evidence of some of that. There are people, as I've just shown you, who are disturbed and who need help more than incarceration. But there are also people who are disillusioned, and those are people who are particularly from the first wave of people who've gone over. People went over because they wanted to fight against Assad, because they believed in the notion of genocide, who do not agree with how the conflict has turned out, and who now feel that they are stuck in Syria without any option of either leaving ISIS or going back to their home countries. In fact, one of them, who said he was speaking for 30 fighters, contacted my colleague Shiraz in August, and he said the following. 
He said, the truth is, many people left to help the Syrian people. Then we got labeled as terrorists. Now people want to come back, not to attack, but because they found out jihad isn't what they thought. We all saw videos. They they hyped us up. We saw the suffering of the Syrians. But right now, Muslims are fighting Muslims. Assad's forgotten about. The whole jihad was turned upside down. He also said, I'd come back if they wouldn't arrest me, yes, not because I want to attack the UK. And then he talks about a friend of his who had gone with him initially and who was arrested, has now actually just been convicted in the UK to a long prison sentence. He says um, he was one who couldn't take it, so he risked going back. Look what's happened to him. And it is that example of his friend who was as disillusioned as he was getting arrested and incarcerated that now prevents him from abandoning uh, the group that he's with and also returning to home country, uh, returning to Britain. And so in that sense, you can see that um, a a one-dimensional policy that says we're going to arrest, incarcerate everyone is actually preventing people from leaving ISIS, preventing people from weakening ISIS and coming back to their home countries and reintegrate. Now, of course, it will be um, incredibly important, and I hope that the government is working on that, to establish uh, instruments and mechanisms for assessing what kind of group people belong to. It will also be important to counter the appeal of foreign fighting, and with that, I'm going to close. What we are seeing in a lot of the messages that we read from foreign fighters themselves and also what they are telling us is that the experience that they have in Syria is not universally happy. And there are powerful messages coming from fighters themselves that could be used if you wanted um, to prevent more people from going. Here are two examples. A lot of people say, for example, that they are flabbergasted by the fact that once they go to Syria that a lot of Syrians do not like them. He went there to help the Syrian people, and the Syrian people say, we do not want you here. And I think that's a very powerful message. If you got out the message that the Syrian people that you're pretending to help do not actually want you there. Now, of course, they always rationalize it at some point, and they then say, oh, well, the Syrian people are stupid anyway. We came here to liberate the country and to land, and then we're going to teach them Islam, and at some point they're going to understand what we're here for. But really, initially, a lot of people are disappointed about that. Equally, the fact, and this goes back to the very beginning of my presentation, the fact that there's still a lot of infighting, there's still a lot of fuse between different Sunni opposition groups. And the chances that you will be killed in a feud between different Sunni opposition groups are as high as you being killed in fighting Bashar Assad. And we know from the experience last year, between December 2013 and April 2014, that that narrative of infighting is something that really prevents people from going there. So if I was to advise the government, I would say that's the kind of message that you should, go, uh, should get out. The Syrians do not want, there, want you there. There are better ways, maybe, of helping the Syrian people. And if you go there, you will not even make a difference because the chances are that within a few days, you will be killed in infighting. Thank you very much.